Guess what? I'm moving country again. I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe more. Where's home? Home's everywhere. I'm an expat. Hello, it's Pauline. Welcome to a new episode of Meet the Expats. Today I am with David McNeil, founder of Expat Empire. He is right now located in Portugal, close to Porto, an American originally, but has traveled to quite a few countries. And today we're going to be focusing around his experience in Japan. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Well, thank you for reaching out. It's lovely to meet you. and. I'm excited to compare if we've had sort of the same experience in Japan or not. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be able to talk to someone else who has some experience there and always good opportunity to compare notes. Yeah, yours is definitely more recent than mine and probably not in the same context. But still, we'll see how you how you live that. Mm-hmm. So you're originally from the United States and have moved a lot. What made you want to travel and start living abroad and start from the beginning yeah sure it's hard to narrow that down to you know any specific reason but there's a lot of little things that I think played a role in it um, to try to wrap it up so I I got interested in I guess the idea of living abroad in general just I I was fortunate enough to be able to travel a few times with my parents my family growing up so that was great Um, my Grandpa, for example, also was in the Navy for many years. And so he did some world cruises. And I mean, I was more just hearing the stories as a kid and being interested that way. Yeah. I think those kind of experiences just played into this idea of there's a really big world to explore out there. And so for me, that ended up taking the form of starting to just develop an interest specifically in Japan at first. So yeah, a couple of things kind of came together there. My mom was in a com- working for a company that was selling books and different things. And they had this deal, this sort of discount at some point. Mm. And so I looked I looked through the um the listings and there was this book and cassette tape set for learning Japanese and okay. I was kind of interested in in the language then because I had just I'd been interested in Japanese culture and the animation, the video games, a lot of that stuff was super popular with Pokemon and everything back in the day. Nice. You know, I think that's where a lot of the Japan interested uh, Americans sort of got their start, at least for my generation, I guess you could say. Okay, and, so it's more linked yeah. to the mangas. And yeah, I was wondering, how does a 12 year old kid decide he's going to learn Japanese? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would, you know, put it first to Dragon Ball Z, but at the same time, it was also this idea of this foreign country and the stories from my grandpa. He visited Japan in like mm. 1950 or so, which is like right, obviously right after the war. It's a war, yeah. And just this idea of this, you know, faraway foreign country, all the kind of weird and funny, crazy stuff you okay. read about Japan was sort of captivating my imagination. And yeah, it was just all these little pieces that kind of came together. And I had this opportunity through my mom's company to get this book. and. That's really where it started. It was 30 minutes a day, every day for, I think I did it for nine months approximately, which it was a wow. three-month course. So I did the course a few times. <laughs> and, but, so yeah. you did and that alone with the tape and book. Right, right. So I just had a, oh, wow. I had the cassette tape. I was in my room just practicing, you know, learning the words, the characters, and that's just really where it all started. And then it just 
snowballed from there into a lot of courses, working with tutors, speech contests, finally visiting Japan when I was 17, and so on and so on. Okay, well, motivated uh, at yeah. that time to start learning. <laughs> learning Japanese alone is a tough one. <laughs> yeah, and I was, I was also, I should note, when I started it, when I started with this course, I was in Mobile, Alabama, which is not known for its Japanese population. I can or, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to move with my family to the Los Angeles area when I was in uh, starting eighth grade. And there, you know, they were just open the world to me. And of course, just an international metropolitan city. But on top of that, having an opportunity to go to a Japanese after school program and things like that, just open the door to more opportunities. Oh, wow. So you really worked on that. And then what were the steps to actually move to Japan? I guess it was something you'd worked on for, for years and was sort of a kids dream then as you started learning about the country so early yes yeah so it did take a long time it was yeah first I visited Japan um, with kind of a let's say language study and travel and homestay type experience for one month when I was 17 came back from that was super pumped up kept studying Japanese more and thought of course I want to figure out a way to get there or at least continue studying it in university so I went to the University of Texas at Austin from when I was 18. And then the next summer when I was 19, I went with a friend for one month again to Japan. And mm-hmm. we just had this, again, just this amazing experience each time I came back so pumped up and wanting to just dedicate myself more to my studies and figuring out how I could get there. But what was different the second time was coming back and thinking, I actually don't want to go to Japan again as a tourist. The next time right. that I come here, I want to be living here like to stay and And, yeah what motivated that what is it in the country and the culture that pumps you up so much and makes you want to move there yeah it's a good question uh i think it's you know part of it was okay i'd already been studying japanese for so long i developed this uh, immense passion for the language and for the people and all the friendships i'd made from we we had some students stay at our um at our house with the family for a couple of weeks and we had yeah like the tutor that i worked with was japanese uh living in america and i think it was just you know i had a lot of pin pals and right. i developed all of this kind of connection with japan and going there and seeing it and it's just so different but so interesting and the culture is really cool and the mix of the old you know, temples next to the massive skyscrapers. And yeah, um, there is this mix of modern and tradition that blends in very well. I don't know how they do it. I I don't either. And it's uh, something that I, I've, I have visited a lot of countries and certainly, you know, you'll see super old stuff in a place like in, in countries like France or Italy. And, you know, there's all of that. And, but something about the way Japan does it is, is different and just, Mm. I think it was just that feeling of, again, I had seen Japan as a tourist, so I'd already traveled around for two one-month trips. I had seen so much, I'd done so much, and I just really wanted to be able to be there and not be just there on a trip and the tourist and barely kind of scratching the surface of the city. I really right. wanted to get deep into it, and I didn't feel like another trip there as a tourist would really be all that satisfying. So it was a great just way for me to 
that was just my feeling to go with at the time was like, okay, how do I make this a, a permanent reality for me? So going back to the US, it was trying to get a job there coming out of university. I wasn't able to do that. I tried a lot of routes. I tried internships and different things and nothing came together. And right. then I thought, okay, well, actually I took some advice from someone that I interviewed with and she said, it's great that you have this interest in Japan. You speak the language, you know, keep that up, but get your start here in the United States and then see if you can leverage those experiences in a Japanese context. And so that's how I started my career in the U.S. in finance. And then I wanted to work for tech companies. So I started working at a tech company as a product manager and try to keep it short. But basically, I had a three-month opportunity to work in the Beijing office of that company. So, okay, of course, so getting closer, <laughs> getting closer, at least I was abroad, right? So yeah. totally, totally different country, but same region and I just thought, okay, maybe China's the future. If that's what it is, then great. In fact, I was super, super excited about it as well. But yeah. then when I came, I came back shortly after that, I got laid off and the vision of me going back to China with that company at least was gone. It was gone, yeah. Then I thought, okay, I'm not going to let one company, one position decide whether or not I get abroad. So yeah. I started applying to jobs in China and Japan. And then eventually, yeah, long story short, Later. got that job. In Japan, wow. so, yep. so what is the process or what are things to specifically do or look out for when applying for jobs in Japan? Because their culture is very different. I know the workplace is quite different to what we can know in Western countries. Is there sort of a technique or is it just a type of companies? Do you look at international companies, local companies? Right. Of course, it depends on what you're trying to do. So I tend to kind of bucket people into three groups for the folks that work in Japan. And I mean, this is just a rough kind of way to think yeah. of it mentally. But I would say they're the people who are there to teach English. That's a very, yeah. let's say, relatively straightforward way to do things. And also, you could go there as a translator. I mean, there's many other options, but there's kind of that group of people that go there straight out of school um, you could also do things like headhunting and recruiting for English-speaking talent in Japan, things like that. So right. that's that's sort of one group. Then there's another group that's the senior executive. And they go there, they get sort of the red carpet rolled out for them, you know, through their company. Hmm. And that's a great route if you can manage it. But I would generally tell people that unless, you know, your company clearly has a need there or they're planning definitely to open an office, now, what I've seen is a lot of um, Japanese offices for companies, they get that general manager directly in Japan already. I'm not yeah. saying there might not be an opportunity to go and visit or to start up the mm. office, but typically they'll actually find the, you know, very uh, well-educated English-speaking, yeah, local. So yeah. there are those opportunities, but you have to be at the right place at the right time. So then I would just say the other bucket is everything else, which is what I fell into. And of course, that can be a big bucket as well, but yeah. it, you know, it can be local jobs. It can be foreign companies there. It can be foreigner founded local companies. So foreigners that founded companies in Japan, it can be people that start a business in Japan. So yeah, it kind of depends on what you're doing and what you want to do, like what, what type of work. And, you know, for me I, and for a lot of people, I recommend kind of tapping into the headhunter recruiter 
um, sector kind of, or let's say the, the Japanese market is very relationship focused. And okay. as a result, you know, if you're looking for something that is local, then being able to have that introduction, that connection to the opportunities on the ground is very important. So that's probably just at a high level, some advice I'd give for people that are looking for those types of opportunities that are not the most common yeah. ones. Okay. And still staying sort of on the work side of things, we'll, we'll move to culture a bit, uh, a bit after. But on the work side, did you go a little bit prepared? Had you done research before like started and I'll see what the culture, work culture is like? <laughs> yeah, the work the work culture is always an interesting part of, you know, speaking about living in Japan. So what I remember very clearly is during the interview, the last interview that I had before I got the offer that I ultimately got to go to Japan, there were it was a two on one interview and it was the hiring mm -hmm. manager and the manager of the manager. Right. As well as one person from recruit like HR, so human resources. And okay. this uh, this guy asked the HR person, are you kind of ready and excited and, you know, prepared to be able to work here in Japan with this Japanese, you know, work environment, work culture. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was sitting there thinking, I really want to get to Japan. I mean, this has been my dream since I was young, right? Yeah. So, of course. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, you immediately just say, look, I've studied the language, I've studied the culture in university. So I did a double major in finance as well as like sort of Japanese and Japanese culture and everything. Mm -hmm. So I just very strongly said yes, but I still always in the back of my mind, even before the interview and after the interview, I always kind of wondered, would I be able to fit in in Japan? I mean, it was a yeah. concern for me. And what I decided in the end is that you don't know until you try. So I'm going to try. And even if I find out that I hate it and I never want to live there again, at least I know from firsthand yeah. experience, right? as opposed to just being concerned and staying on the sidelines. Yeah. So, but it was a good question for him to ask. I was working for a Japanese company that is very international. So it's ASICS or ASICS, depending on where you're from. It's the mm. sportswear company. Yeah. And I was working in a small office that was very foreigner centric, foreigner heavy. And as a result, we kind of had a more let's say generally for Japan, especially for a Japanese company, a more Western environment. But that being said, we still felt the fact that we were in the Japanese office of a Japanese company. We were working with their global counterparts across all the different regional headquarters, but still we had to you know, deal with the fact that it is a Japanese company and Japanese management. So um, definitely felt it in the end. And that's something that's really hard to explain to somebody. And I feel the same way about a lot of places I've lived. I mean, uh, after that, you know, I lived in Germany and yeah. even my, my dad at the time, uh, before I moved there, because he had studied German for a while uh, when he was growing up, he's like, are you sure that you, you know, can deal with sort of the German culture? And I was like, yeah, sure. Of course I can do anything. And, you know, at, at each level, you can kind of eventually you figure out what it is. Yeah. It's hard to say when you're not living there, you don't have that experience. But I do think it's best just to go in with an open attitude, positive attitude, and just say, yeah, I can do it. And then you figure it out when you get there. And if you don't like it, then, well, you figure well, that you out. Know. Road, yeah. You know? yeah. So what sort of struck you in the, um, 
in the culture when working in Japan or either that you found difficult or really liked or just had to adjust to? Yeah, um, there were quite some things. Um, it was a lot of change for me. So it was a job, at least initially, more in the marketing field. I only worked at that company for one year. So, um, and before that I was in finance. So yeah, there was a lot of things. So like some things that come to mind, for example, are everything, you know, you have to use this Honko is what it's called, but the little stamp, everyone has like a personal stamp and you have to get these government, these, uh, corporate documents like budget planning and all of this stuff. Like you have to, you have to wait until the boss is back in the office to be able to use his physical stamp to, you know, to do something. And there's like, tons and tons of paperwork and they still use, you know, fax machines to get it from here to there. That is quite crazy given they're so advanced in the technology. Well, that's the thing. And I think this is what breaks down a bit when we live in like different places is that we, we hear the stereotype in a way, like we're always thinking Japan's so ahead in technology and also Germans are so efficient, <laughs> but <laughs> when we actually live there, <laughs> we yeah. start to see that at least Different in some level, some of these things break down a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, you know, J- Japan and Germany as well are both still very cash heavy societies. So mm. I remember when I first arrived in Japan, for example, I went to the ATM and I got out what w- what was effectively, let's say approximately a hundred dollar note and I got yeah. you know some of those and I I thought it was going to be smaller uh denomination but it came out as a hundred approximately a hundred dollar note and I was shocked by this and I even asked the guy that sort of met me there a bit of like relocation help with the company and he just thought it was totally normal but I thought man can anyone break this money you know like this note this is a huge note and then I eventually very quickly after living there for some weeks discovered no, this is very normal. Everyone can break this note. You know, yeah. no one's surprised or really bats an eye when you have a big denomination like that. So, you know, these are just some things in daily life that surprised me. But with Japan work environment, it was, yeah, even in this small foreigner heavy office, it was kind of navigating the Japanese bureaucracy, the paperwork, the good and the bad of the technology, the fact that we were foreigners there but we're in the Japanese office. So kind of what applies to us, what doesn't apply to us. And I was also coming in with some knowledge of Japanese, speaking it very well. And so there were sort of different expectations on different people based on how familiar they were with Japan, how long they lived there, how well they spoke the language. So there was just a lot to navigate. Yeah, it's a lot to to get through at the when you start. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was really being thrown in the deep end. And, you know, I had to very quickly, I'd never managed a budget before as far as a corporate budget. And all of a sudden I had all this money that was now my budget and I had to make use of it really quickly. And then I had all these issues with the administrative assistant going back and forth, just like, it, it was an interesting situation where I was younger in age and she'd also worked at the company for she was, so she was older than me and she'd worked at the company, I think, since she had graduated from university. So she was more senior, but yet my role was more senior. I mean, nice. she was the administrative assistant and I was doing, trying to manage this like million dollar budget. And 
um, yeah, it created a lot of friction. To be honest, it was <laughs> it was very difficult. Um, <laughs> and eventually, after many months of of warring, uh, of fighting in the office, you know, we kind of had our moment where we had to like basically make a truce and try to work <laughs> together from that point. But all of these things, yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought through the challenges of coming new into a company when a hierarchy, um, a seniority based on tenure is, is, you know, part of the society. Yeah, it is. Hierarchy within companies in Japan, I've heard, is is very big, very important, and like, you don't overstep. Right. And it's very specific. You have to get this person's approval, this person's approval. You have to basically go all the way up the chain. And, each and all person, the way back down. <laughs> yeah, and then all the way back down, exactly. And that can happen multiple times, and you need several copies and indeed then with physical stamps and faxing things. And it's just, you have to uh, learn how to negotiate the politics and the hierarchy, negotiate uh, or manage all of the paperwork, get things done on time, you know, filing deadlines. Yeah, it was, it was a lot to jump into. Yeah. I guess there's a lot more SLAs with the load of paperwork that you need. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I've definitely had my fill. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. And what about um, the lifestyle? You adapting there on, yeah, everyday life versus being just a one-month tourist this time. Yeah, it, it was really incredible. I mean, I was just pinching myself when I first arrived and I definitely made a point as I do whenever I move somewhere to try to make the most of every single day as best as I could to explore different parts of the city, to try new restaurants, new bars, new events, meetups, different things, Uh, or taking trips for that matter to different cities or nearby countries, which was difficult in the sense that there aren't so many holidays. There are a lot of public holidays, but there aren't many holidays for your, you know, from your employer. I guess that's well known about Japan too, but the golden week. Yes, there's pretty much golden week. Yeah, <laughs> there's golden week. There's like three days around New Year's. I mean, I was I was still pushing it as much as I could and taking every one of my ten uh, employer allowed, you know, uh, days Yeah, <laughs> so I made sure to fully maximize the time. Yeah, it was it was amazing and it was very different to live there. You know, in good and bad ways, right? mostly great, you know, mostly really great ways, but then you have to deal with, you know, for example, opening and managing a bank account. And every time you go into a bank in Japan, you can expect it to take at least one hour. I mean, if you have to do more than withdraw money. Well, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like opening a bank account has been complicated for me about everywhere I went. (laughs) Yeah. I think I've been a bit spoiled um, more recently because I've gotten more accustomed to like online digital only yeah. no br- yeah. no branch bank accounts, which are That's easier. Yeah, I think significantly better. But indeed, even when I had to open one here in Portugal, actually, yeah, to be fair, it was difficult. But I haven't had to go back into the branch since then, and mm-hmm. everything's now online. But Japan, as of yet, you know, I mean, maybe things are better since when I left. I left in 2016, but you know, it, it still isn't as technologically advanced as you might think based on the stereotype (laughs) (laughs) and so what was 
what was easy or that you discovered and really liked in the day-to-day life? Hmm. In terms of the day-to-day life, uh, of course, it, it's something that maybe many of the listeners are already expecting, but one of the highlights is definitely the food. Like, but that almost is is so not even worth mentioning because I think everyone's already aware of that. But the food was incredible pretty much everywhere you go. Every restaurant that's, at least in Tokyo where I was living, pretty much every restaurant that's still surviving is going to be good. If it's yeah. not good, it won't survive. What would be one of your favorite dishes, local dish? Yeah, so uh, for me, that is and has for a long time been Japanese curry. Have you had this before? Yeah, I probably yes, yeah, yes, I have okay. had it's it's not it wasn't necessarily my go-to. I was a very uh, katsudon and oyakudon yes. person. Love those. Yeah. So just for reference, that's an omelet with either fried chicken or fi- fried pork on top of rice. Yes, and and there's so many. I mean, those those are great too. So, <laughs> um, but something for me about the the curry, I I love curry in general. So whether it's Indian or Thai or anything, but something about Japanese curry has just always like it's like the one of the perfect tastes for me. Like I'm always into it. So. <laughs> it's never too spicy. Like compared to Thai curry, it's not as strong. I think. Yeah, and depends on the restaurant, and of course you could get ask for different levels of spiciness. But yeah, it's yeah. it's more mild, it's a bit sweeter. But something mm. about the taste is like so. What Japan does really well, I think, is they take ideas or food or or whatever from different countries, and they they mix it up a little bit, and they they yeah. put their own Japanese spin on it. And I think Japanese curry is a great example of that, where it's it's a taste that you can't really find in other types of curry, but clearly it's not let's say traditionally, you know, quote unquote, from maybe not authentic Japanese food, but it's so unique that it is kind of Japanese food now, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, they they do a lot of, uh, indeed, they do a lot of fusion, but you always find that Japanese uh, side to it, which is quite interesting. And something else I was just thinking about in terms of the highlights of living in Japan is just, I love just taking kind of long walks around cities and being in Tokyo. I mean, there's just so much to see. And I was always just trying to see as much of it as I could on foot, as far as just walking down the little alleys and different streets. And if I saw a cool bar just to pop in there. And I think that feel that I had when I was in Tokyo, just exploring is, of course, I get that in new cities that I go to all the time, but there's just something about that big metropolis that's so kind of mysterious and has all these little, little tiny shops and bars and so many little alleys to explore and like, Oh, surprise. You just walk, you know, next to a temple and, uh, or an amazing park or just that feeling of exploration is something that I treasured and I still miss. Yeah. There is that side to Tokyo at least where you never know what's going to come up in the next corner I mean you can move very quickly from this vibrant very busy neighborhood uh, to a temple and you don't hear a thing and then there's going to be a lot of bars and then there's going to be all the electronics and it is quite amazing how much changing the neighborhoods can be and for me I moved to Japan after having been in France in a very small town mm-hmm. what really struck me is how it was 
it was the first time I was exploring a city where all my senses were really alert. There's really this right. thing where you're constantly looking. There's screens. There's a park. There's constantly something going on. There's sound all the time. If you're going through Shibuya, I mean, there's people shouting and there's advertising yeah. and there's music on and there's the lights and then you have the smell of food and you come home and you're just a wreck. But because all your senses were just constantly exerted and motivated yeah and and it's a bit addictive in a way because yeah. yeah moving somewhere else i mean when i was younger i thought i needed to move to sort of every big city i just wanted to experience living in every big city and my goal has changed now i'm yeah. after a, a few a years more, of living in berlin yeah <laughs> but a bit more relaxed after. <laughs> yeah maybe yeah maybe it was all just to get a little bit more of a relaxing environment i think that's a big part of it but that it, it, there is something extremely addictive about this, at least for me, this feeling of this city that I have to explore, that I want to understand every little nook and cranny and I want to just dig under the surface. That was a big reason why I was interested in Berlin yeah. as well, as I just felt like there was so much going on that I just wanted to experience a bit more. And yeah, that, that part of Tokyo is, or just Japan in general, and just so incredible and yeah, I, I miss that still. And so I'm always glad. To, I don't go too frequently, but when I can visit again, it's just that it just gets me right back in that mode, you know, that, that mood. Yeah, there's an adrenaline in, in Tokyo, at least. It just keeps you going all day, all night for very different atmospheres. It's quite funny. Yeah. And I think something that struck me, I don't know if for you it was the same, is the fashion there is quite crazy where. I think people there a lot more, although there's this very traditional sense in Japan and you feel that people are very polite, shy, and maybe reserved. I feel like they express themselves a lot more in the fashion, actually their things that you don't necessarily see in other cities. Yeah, I, I saw some pretty amazing fashion and it, of course, changes with the times and maybe there were definitely been a lot of different trends in Japanese fashion now. But I, would, I was surprised on some level, like going to Harajuku, which is the big you know, fashion center. Um, I would be surprised sometimes that I wouldn't see all that much crazy fashion. I think a lot of stuff, at least when I was there, that was more popular was funny enough. It was uh, universe, American University hoodies and shirts <laughs> and different stuff. And I was, it was like a bit weird, but it was, and maybe some more um, uh, vintage stuff. And that being said, though, I did see some like amazingly you know very interestingly ornately uh dressed you know fashion sensed people there so it it was always kind of yeah you, you never knew what you were going to see around the corner and another just example is i was when i was in high school i was very interested in the sort of geisha culture this like you know right. old style of like serving tea and doing these, you know, different dances and stuff. Just something about that old ancient Japanese society really was interesting to me. And when my dad, my dad came to visit, we took a trip around some, you know, Kyoto and different places in Japan. Yeah. And we were just walking around the old, I think it's called Gion, the old geisha district in Kyoto. Yeah. And all of a sudden, right next to us, because the, the, the tour guide had told us, by the way, that they don't see too many geisha there anymore. And usually it's kind of very discreet and maybe it's like they take a cab up to the entrance. But just as like soon after she was saying that, 
we're standing there and all of a sudden a cab pulls up and, you know, the geisha, the Michael-san, the younger kind of uh, junior geisha, I suppose, uh, got out of the car. And there was also this like 70, 80 year old man and just like walking into, I guess, probably a, a fun old school party. <laughs> so, you know, just seeing that that type of thing, you just never know yeah. what you're going to see around the corner and you can get that peek into the the history or like just life. yeah something very traditional and something very discreet and that stuff just compelled me I mean, it's just so amazing to me so <laughs> <laughs> and what about integration and making making friends building your social circle there so you have the advantage that you speak japanese and that is right. a big big plus but were you able to really make real friends with Japanese people or more international? Yeah, it was difficult. It wasn't as easy as I'd hoped from looking, you know, from the US coming there thinking, oh, I speak Japanese fluently. It's going to be a breeze. It was difficult. And I think that's partially that Japanese people can be a little bit hard to kind of break into the, the circle, even it, especially just in general as an outsider. I mean, on top of not already knowing them or having the connections with somebody on top of that it's even speaking Japanese you're still the foreigner and you kind of learn yeah. in Japan over time that you'll never really be uh, you'll Japanese always be <laughs> yeah the gaijin no yes yes, yes. so you're, you're always the gaijin you're always kind of on the outside and I did make some good friends but not so many Japanese friends despite trying to but it but it was yeah. difficult um and at work, I ended up being the, I didn't know this until I got there, but I was the youngest person on the team. And a lot okay. of other people were, you know, already, you know, with a significant other, married, with kids, whatever. So yeah. that was difficult. I did make some friends. I made most of my friends with other foreigners, but even then it was challenging because it's a big city full of people with all different backgrounds. And I talked about the three kind of buckets of people before. Yeah. And um, I think working let's say a job that wasn't, you know, for just to paint it with a very like wide, <laughs> large brushes and a non-English teaching job it, in the middle of Tokyo, it was more difficult than I expected to meet other foreigners in the sense that a lot of them maybe were not making quite as much money to be able to really go out or, you know, they were living further away from the city. So harder to make those connections and make them stronger over time because maybe you'd see them every other week or once a month. And I was kind of living a bit of a different life there, but there's all different sort of levels to it. Like you could be kind of on the low, like let's say lower paid end and maybe living further out from the city, or you could be in a finance high powered role and making a ton of money, yeah. um, living in a huge high rise and, you know, so it, and it the was, <laughs> exactly so it was it was difficult honestly um but i did make some good friends there although i would say comparing to for example living in berlin i was i think much more successful at making those sort of sturdy long-term friendships okay let's move on to the recommendations um sure. <laughs> they might not still be there i don't know you know it's fast-paced to eat things right. change a lot um but what would be for you a bar of your choice at restaurants and the last one is a spot of your choice it can be anything from 
an automatic hairdresser or uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah there was the robot hairdressers I tried once but it is quite crazy <laughs> I didn't try that one. Oh, it, it it's phenomenal you really feel like there are times, uh, washing your hair and massaging oh, yeah. your hair and absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty great um so yeah anything of your choice it could be a temple uh, another bar or whatever address uh, you want sure so um the ones i thought of as i was going through this and i did check that at least this one appears to still be i think this was a really cool bar i didn't take advantage of it as much as i should but i think it's a good place to call out for folks that are interested in visiting tokyo it's called a uh, bar gin yamamoto and okay. it's uh, i believe only, like has only eight seats there so you may want to try to kind of okay. contact ahead and get a reservation and according at least to the uh to the facebook page um you know it seems i don't know if it's google translate but it seems like uh whoever's managing it can speak english so i think you'll be all right with that if, if it's really easier <laughs> yeah but it's just um really local ingredients really cool cocktails if i remember correctly it was you know one of those places where they don't necessarily have uh, a menu or maybe it maybe it was just a constantly changing short menu but most of these like really high-end bars and, uh, and incredible like you can get incredible cocktails with really fresh ingredients and normally you just tell them maybe what you're in the mood for in terms of sour or sweet or what and of course what you know what liquor that you're uh, want the base to be and they'll just put together something amazing so there's tons of these incredible bars in tokyo and anyone you know that wants to can definitely do their research on it but this was one that stood out to me and uh, i mean for what it's worth <laughs> i still follow them on on social media which i guess says something so i guess they're still alive then <laughs> yeah yeah they're doing they're doing all right i think or you know they're surviving at least um so that would yeah. be the bar so bar gen yamamoto is the bar the restaurant i have to go back we already talked a bit about curry but i'll just explain that part so this is a this is a national chain, at least I think so. It's called Coco Ichi. And okay. uh, it is, so it's it's not anything special per se, but to me, they just serve, in my opinion, they serve like that perfect curry taste <laughs> every <laughs> single time. <laughs> and it's like, it's hard to describe what that is, but to me, this place is awesome. And um, it's called Coco Ichi and it's, uh, they're, they're all over Tokyo okay. and I'm sure Japan. Um, whenever you are in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it was pretty funny because the place that I ended up living in Tokyo, I uh, the apartment, it was very attractive as far as one of the criteria is that or fact, factors or filters in terms of comparing different places outside of that I love the apartment was that it was a few minutes walk to a Kokoichi. So <laughs> <laughs> comfort food was close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there there were not many downsides to that was def, at least that was an upside um, to that yeah. place. And when my dad uh, anyway visited Japan, we both are just curry Japanese curry fiends um, ever since like high school and so on. So we pretty much had kokoichi every day. So <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the level of my love for this chain place. <laughs> and the carte blanche is. Maybe people have heard of it. It's called Golden Guy. And have you have you been there? Or have you heard of this place? No, I haven't. It's uh, it's in Shinjuku, so it's in downtown yeah. Tokyo. Uh, and it's 
basically very, very uh, small bars back to back or, you know, sort of next to each other. And it's become more touristy in the recent years. When I first started going there, and I mean, when I first started going there, it felt a little bit less touristy as far as just not so many people going there and kind of a bit slower. And um, it also felt, and certainly at the time, from what I remember, some of the small bars were really not welcoming uh, or not open to foreigners. Um, And they kind of had their like Japanese crowd. And I think in the last handful of years, and I even when I went back in um, to visit in 2019, it just felt like uh, much more of a touristy place. But on the, on the one hand, yeah, you could say that's a bit of a bummer. But on the other hand, I'm glad that they're doing well financially. Well. But what's cool is it's got to be between 100 and 200 small little bars, even okay. some like on top of each other, um, next to each other in a couple of streets. And they all have a different theme, a different vibe. Some of them show movies. Um, some of them just have all kinds of crazy furniture and artwork. Some of them are just more low-key. And it's just awesome to be able to go from one to another, check out different places, get a drink here, get a drink there. Of course, a lot of them charge a, a seating fee, like maybe okay. 500 or 1,000 yen. So you might have to pay just to go in or to you know get a little like snack or something. Um, so it can be costly, I suppose, if you were to jump from a lot of them in one night. Okay. But but it is such a such a cool place, and I love the vibe. You know, maybe it's not sort of for everyone, but I think it's just gaining some popularity. And I really want to just shout the place out because I think it's so cool. And it's yeah, maybe it's more modernized, but it's still a glimpse into old school Japan where they had just this feel once again of seeing all the small uh, nooks and crannies in the city where they have these small bars that can't fit more than you know, five, 10 people. Um, it's just such a cool vibe. They, they have hundreds it. of those tiny bars and tiny restaurants um, that are just so good. They have their yeah. own vibe. There's a bit of a traditional and quirky, quirky feel to them. Yeah, they all have their own thing. And that's, you know, that's also, I guess, something about Japan is that people can make their own little place and have it survive like a small ramen shop or whatever and have it just have its core group of people that always go there and support it and, you know, survive for a long time. I remember there was a ramen restaurant just at the bottom of the street where I was living and I tried it once and it was a, I don't remember what style, it was a different style than sort of a typical ramen place from one of the prefectures. And I, I thought it was, you know, like a nice little place. I thought the food was fine. But I, what I realized as they ended up going closing the business for one reason or another is that they had the steel kind of you know uh, thing over the front, and uh, as it was closed, and all of these uh, thank you notes and different things were being posted by all their you know their lovers, their fans for this restaurant that had been there for a long time, and I think. Sweet. You know, yeah, I think it was really amazing to see that. And I mean, it's got to be incredible, despite the, the difficulties of closing the restaurant for, for what reason they closed. I'm not sure. But despite the difficulties, it's got to be amazing to see that outpouring of love and appreciation for something that's even in the, in the midst of one of the largest cities in the world, you know. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's really cool about Japan. That is nice. And so what made you move on, move on to the next country? Yeah, yeah. Um, so 
of course that wasn't my plan and I'm sure pl- many people have been listening for the last 45 plus minutes and thinking, well, why isn't he still living there? In short, the job that I was working at there was essentially coming to a close for me. Either I could stay and do something totally different, which I didn't want to do, or I could move to uh, back to the United States to work for a company that they had just acquired. So I didn't want to go back to the US and um, I didn't want to do something that I wasn't as interested in. And for me, it wasn't about the shoes or about the specific projects I was working on. It was the fact that I was doing marketing for an app and product management. And basically that opportunity to work on that app was kind of disappearing. And I was on an annual contract, so I wasn't sure if it was going to survive, if I would survive the the next renewal round. And uh, I looked around in Tokyo. I applied to about 50 jobs, five zero. And I barely got like, I got to many third, like final rounds. I even got one offer, which was eventually reneged upon by the company. And I just was having like sort of a terrible experience trying to find that next role in in terms of what I wanted to do and the type of company I wanted to work for. And uh, after a while, I just felt like I was like banging my head against the wall a bit. And I thought, okay, let me, yeah, let, let me see what else is kind of out there. And I thought outside of Japan as well, which of course was a hard decision to make, but I just had that positive image I had of Berlin. I had actually visited in 2014. And so, you know, I thought maybe that could be the next place for me. And I just started reaching out and uh, tapping into my network and Basically, the the first company I applied to in Berlin gave me a great offer, and yeah. it just felt a little bit, you know, like the universe was telling me it was time to move yeah. on. So, it was right. definitely sad, um, and I made it. I, I really tried to make it work in Japan, and maybe I'll get back there sometime in the future. I don't know, but you know, I moved on, and I think it's for the best. But I did. I mean, I did have an amazing time, and it's something that I'll always remember and treasure. And even just talking about Japan now just takes me back into that nostalgia. Brings back the memories. Yeah. And so before before we wrap up, the last question I ask is, what is a song that represents your journey, either in Japan or your full journey abroad? I'd say preferably Japan. Yeah. The one that I came up with in preparation for this is one that I listen to a lot in high school. So uh, when I was in high school and studying Japanese a lot, I mean, this was, a hu- as, as we talked about, a huge passion of mine. There was this station that at least sometimes played Japanese shows and uh, on TV. And they had this one that was about Japanese music for 30 minutes. And so I would watch that sometimes with my dad too, even though he wasn't studying or anything, but just we liked the music. And I found out about this artist, Utara Hikaru. Maybe have you heard of her before? I don't think so, but you okay. will see the link. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Utada Hikaru, and the song is called Passion. And every time I listen to the song, it just like immediately transports me back to Japan. And I built that connection with the song in high school, but it's just an artist that I've loved since those days. And even though I don't listen to hardly any Japanese music anymore, I still put on Utada Hikaru's uh, music sometimes. And this one song just just transports me back it like puts me right back in the streets of tokyo because i would listen to it as i would you know go around so i just have that connection with the song um and so i think that's probably the best one to share nice 
Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining, David. And it's very interesting to hear your story about your passion for Japan, how you moved there, how you had to fit into work, and well, the whole culture and Japan. I was um, took me back to Tokyo for a while. Also, <laughs> I'd love to go back. I haven't been back in years, but、um, someday maybe. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I'll link everything in the comments. So bar, restaurants, and.、Um, The Carte Blanche and the song. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode,、uh, go put a review and a couple of stars on Apple Podcasts, and stay tuned for the next one. Thank you. Thank you.